Do not adjust your frequency. You are about to enter a dimension. A dimension of sight. A dimension of sound. A dimension of mind. A dimension that redefines radio in Windsor and Detroit. You are now entering C-Jam 99.1 FM. Listening to Magna Carta Pro Bono Radio on CGM 99.1 FM. This is Stephen Adler along with my co host Summer Simon. We'll be hosting your next hour of Pro Bono Radio. We're both first year law students here at the University of Windsor, and if you're tuning in for the first time, I'd like to extend a warm welcome and recap what our organization, Pro Bono Students Canada, is all about. Since Windsor has a huge social justice focus, Pro Bono fits in perfectly with its work to match law student volunteers with organizations to deliver legal services which are in great need but lack sufficient resources to retain legal counsel. All projects are under this, the organization. I'll start this All projects under the organization are under the supervision of a lawyer. Pro Bono not only provides law students with volunteer opportunities to, to develop legal skills, but also has a positive impact on the legal profession by promoting the value of pro bono services by aiming to increase access to justice across Canada through its 22 chapters in Canadian law schools. In each of our weekly shows, we will be highlighting various pro bono projects, their student volunteers, and their experiences with Pro Bono Students Canada on their projects in the Windsor Law Chapter. A brief disclaimer. Before we get into legal discussion, we would like to let everyone know that anything said on this radio talk show are the opinions of those people only and do not re reflect CJM as a radio station. So to start, we're going to look at, it comes out of the Windsor Starts, an article by Taylor Campbell, and it's titled, Windsor Professor Honoured by the Order of Canada Appointment. So in this article, a University of Windsor law professor's advocacy for those who represent themselves in court earned her one of Canada's highest honors. This was to Julie McFarlane, who was born in the United Kingdom and then moved to London, Ontario in 1992. McFarlane, two years later, she moved to Windsor and settled in Kingsville shortly after. McFarlane is the founder of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project, which is among 120 appointments to the Order of Canada announced by the Governor General McFarlane is the founder of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project, which was among 120 appointments to the Order of Canada announced by Governor General Julie Payette on December 28th. 
McFarland said that she was very honored and it was a combination of astonishment as well as very proud that her country would have an award like this to someone who notoriously stirred the pot and that's how she felt she was portrayed. McFarland's work has spanned various topics that as described by herself at first glance people felt put off by and that there's some pre-existing assumption about. This includes topics such as Islamic divorce in North America, access to justice for people experiencing sexual violence, and the stories of those who go to court without lawyers on their side. McFarland got quite a bit of pushback in her past work regarding her work on these topics, but said it was familiar to her due to the nature of her work and the pushback that she's gotten. She said that these are things that make people uncomfortable, but her decades-long goal in her research is to see the story behind the story because it's often what is not looked at on the outside. And then she's using horror work to inform people of these issues. McFarlane also has spoken out about um, non-disclosure agreements in legal settlements involving sexual misconduct. Well... First things first, we got to give a round of applause to Professor McFarland. Congratulations. That's uh, that's quite an honor. I don't know if those claps will sound so good on the <laughs> microphone, but hopefully you guys at home get the gist of it. So, yeah, I haven't had the pleasure of uh, learning from Professor McFarland yet, but Summer, you and I are both the first-year law students. Yeah. We have two more years, so hopefully we get to do that in the next couple of years because yeah. that's, uh, that's just great. I actually have a friend who's in 2L, and she was part of the self-represented um, litigants project this past semester so fall 2019 and she actually said it was a great experience she learned a lot she got to represent on not represent but sort of coach and assist with um, information surrounding um, how one can self-represent and was involved in um, whatever the case was with this particular individual and she said it was um, very eye-opening and something a little bit outside of the norm of like law school, kind of the traditional sense at least, of how litigation works. Oh, that's actually really cool. Do you know if that person's a second or third year law student? She's a 2L single. Oh, really? That'd yeah. be a great thing to get involved in uh, mm-hmm. in the future. I mean, we have enough on our plates right now to worry about, but going forward, something like an opportunity like that would be very cool. Yeah. So, I, think, I think it presented a little bit of a different, rather than just sitting in class, you got right. kind of get to go out, meet with the client, and sort of go from there. The school does a very good job of giving us the hands-on stuff, especially um, for those who don't know, Summer and I are both in the dual JD program, which means we learn here at the University of Windsor, but we're also across the river at the University of Detroit Mercy. So dual is in um, both Canadian and American law degrees. And especially recently at uh, University of Detroit Mercy, we've had uh, a visit to the courtship. We're doing, mm-hmm. most of the students in our class are doing summer externships with uh, different courthouses or judges around the Michigan area or close by. So it is fun and, I mean, yeah. more interesting than just sitting in a library when you get to yeah. do this type of hands-on stuff. And specifically on the UDM side, I know um, some people can do it in the summer versus, and then in the upper years, there's they do the mandatory clinic in terms of, like, <coughs> excuse me, the... Getting, I know there's like a veterans clinic in terms of helping veterans. Um, there's numerous, but yeah, definitely the hands-on factor, I feel like, is very important. The summer's fun too. So if there's enough demand, Summer and I will both be in Windsor in June and July. So if we want to bring back Pro Bono Students <laughs> Radio in June and July, if everyone calls in at once, let's say next week on Friday afternoon, 
maybe we can make it happen that we'll do a, a summer show for the loyal listeners at home. We'll see. We'll see. So back to Professor McFarland. So I was looking into it because I had heard about the Order of Canada. You know, obviously, you know, it's one of the most um, honoring awards you can get in this country. So just a little bit about that. It was established in 1967, our, our country's centennial year. And it's, uh, it's given to people whose services shape our society, whose innovation ignite our imagination, and whose compassion unites our communities. And so far, it's been given to um, close to 7,500 people. And if you know someone who fits that mold and you want to nominate them, the governor general appoints it. So if you know someone who embodies the order's uh, motto, which, I mean, should I even attempt to read this in Latin? I'll embarrass myself, <laughs> but here it goes. Desiderante meliorem patrium. Uh, for someone who struggles enough in English, maybe I should not try and do Latin. But <laughs> what that means is they desire a better country. So M- Professor McFarland, uh, it sounds like you completely embody that. And if anyone else knows someone in, uh, you know, in your life who you think embodies that as well, you can always nominate them on the Governor General's website. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you mentioned, it was created in 1967. Since then, about 7,500 people have received the order. Um, McFarland specifically said that she's proud that Canada is willing to give the order to people who are sort of working in the trenches with people. They're doing the messy work and sometimes controversial work. And that's exactly what she was doing. And then specifically about one of her self-represented litigants who reached out in order to congratulate McFarland. She said, or sorry, the self-represented litigant said that he thought the Order of Canada was elite in establishment and that McFarland's appointment gave him faith that the award really looked at the needs of ordinary Canadians and not just um, certain classes. Um, and then going forward, McFarland said that she wants to raise $1 million this year in order to help fund the National Rep- Self-Represented Litigations Project going forward and plans to do speaking arrangements around the country in order to cur- encourage people to donate to that fund. She said that we have, I think, created something of a movement around access to justice. And I think for me personally, I feel like that's really what she's trying to embody in this project is access to justice and self-litigation sort of flows through that. Um, McFarlane is now writing a book about the sexual abuse she suffered as a teenager at the hands of a church minister. The book, which doesn't have a title yet, will be published later this year, and it will incorporate her legal brain to reflect on her experience in the civil and legal systems, as well as the workplace. I think one of the most interesting things you pointed out there is that Professor McFarland points out that she didn't feel like she fit the bill of the typical person that gets this award. Uh, If you look at her interview in the Windsor Star last month, she is a self-described notorious you-know-what disturber. I can't say the word on the (laughs) air, but I think you know what I mean. And she did. She says she got a lot of of pushback on her work. She did a lot of research in the areas that make many people uncomfortable, and she felt she was doing work that was very important, but obviously was... I don't want to maybe not stepping on people's toes, but going to the tough areas. I think she used the words trenches. And it's very nice for her to get acknowledged for work that maybe is not as glamorous. You know, you're researching um, topics like divorce and Islam in North America and um, people signing, uh, maybe not being forced to, but victims signing non-disclosure agreements and cases of sexual assault. These aren't necessarily things that make headlines or are 
easy things to talk about, but she really went to the areas that people needed help in, that research needed to be done in, and it's nice to get that type of recognition when you know, an award like this comes around. It's, it is quite a big deal. Yeah, I think sometimes, in, just in, in general, when you're doing that tough work, it's, though it's tougher to begin with, it can't make pay off. And obviously it gets recognized in the ways that it should. And as um, the one self-represented litigant mentioned, um, it looks at the needs of ordinary Canadians and not just maybe one sort of sector and McFarlane was willing to do that in, as we mentioned, sort of getting into the messy work and the hard work. So as we said, Professor McFarlane um, wants to raise $1 million this year to the fund to fund the National Self-Represented Litigations Project. So if you're interested in supporting that, um, I, I imagine Professor McFarlane would be proud of any small donation in, in size. Mm-hmm. So you can go to representingyourselfcanada.com. It's not a paid advertisement or anything, but it's, uh, <laughs> you know, it's always good to support the, the good causes around us. And especially when recognition is being given, maybe we can all hop on board and, and pitch in. So as I said, that's representingyourselfcanada.com. I'm not sure where they are right now towards their $1 million goal, which is a, a lofty goal. So if we can all help out a bit, it would obviously, I'm sure, be well appreciated and go towards a great cause. Yeah, every little bit counts. And sort of moving off of that story, as I mentioned. Should we take a break now? And then, like, oh, yeah. Yeah. You, okay. Once I, once I take a break, and yeah. then we'll come back and discuss Professor McFarlane more. Yeah. Um, now we're going to take a break. And after the break, we'll be back with more on Professor McFarlane and the book that she's writing. So, As well as stay tuned. We have a wonderful interview coming up later. I don't want to say <laughs> who it's with yet. He's a pretty significant finger, figure in the Windsor Law community, but that one will be in the latter half of the hour. So stay tuned, folks. Guten Tag, meine Damen und Herren. Für Ihr Hör und Sehvergnügen präsentiere ich Ihnen von Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Kanada. Rock and roll the ship dogs. Got a hole in my heart should be two, three,
The Center for Teaching and Learning at U Windsor is calling for nominations for the GATA Awards for Educational Practice and Educational Leadership. These awards recognize contributions from graduate and teaching assistants to the University of Windsor's learning environment and aim to honor exemplary GAs and TAs who contribute to a positive, learning-centered environment at the university. The deadline for nominations is May 25th, 2020 at 5 p.m. Questions and comments about the awards for educational practice and leadership may be directed to Dr. Pierre Boulos at B-O-U-L-O-S at uwindsor.ca. And we are back here at Pro Bono Radio here at the University of Windsor. I am Stephen Adler, still along with my co-host Summer Simon. And before the break, we were talking about Windsor Law Professor uh, Julie McFarlane, who just received the Order of Canada, and it's a big order. And we're continuing with a Professor McFarlane heavy episode here. She's the star of the show this week. <laughs> and to say that's not the only reason she's in the in the news as of late. So Professor McFarlane is actually, after providing testimony recently against a very bad person, uh, which we'll get into a little bit more in a second, mm-hmm. uh, Professor McFarlane has aided in putting a bad man behind bars. And I guess, Summer, you could get us into details a little bit more with that. Yeah, so as we mentioned before the break, she is currently writing a book. And this comes from the source out of the Windsor Star, an article titled, Local University Professor Grateful to See Minister Convicted of 1970s Sex Offenses by Dave Badagello. Um, And so we're just going to run through the facts a little bit that the Anglican minister who had sexually abused McFarlane as a teenager in the mid-1970s has been convicted of sex offenses by a jury in Portsmouth Crown Court in the United Kingdom. McFarlane, who is now 61, provided essential testimony during the trial by video back in January out of Windsor, Ontario. And she had detailed the abuse that occurred decades ago by Marion Griffiths in Chichester, England, while he was um, rector of several churches. And of the conviction, she said that she couldn't stop smiling. She was thrilled. It felt fantastic to feel that finally the system has worked. And... McFarland said that her abuse began 45 years ago at the age of 16 when she turned to Griffiths because she had doubts about her faith. She said the abuse continued for over a year and that personally she felt terrified to tell anyone in part because he was such an authority figure in such a small town and she felt that no one would believe her about it. Uh, McFarland said that the emotional damage that Griffith caused never really left her. And this is why, as an adult in her early 30s, she chose to speak out and take those first steps to seek out authorities within the Anglican Church and tell her story about what happened. By this time, so by McFarland's early 30s, Griffiths had then immigrated and gone to Australia, where he was a minister um, there. And she realized that as an adult, she needed to act because this person who had done these bad acts towards her was also likely doing it to other people. She filed her complaint to the diocese in Australia, which was timely because it had just launched its committee investigating complaints on the clergy. And they took her response and put it towards him, 
they didn't believe Griffith's response, and thus he resigned. McFarlane believed that this was sort of the end of her ordeal with Griffiths, and she received a letter letter of apology from the archbishop. Soon after that, Griffiths switched over to the Uniting Church in Australia, where he was once again a minister, and this knowledge was unknown to McFarlane for years. She never knew that he was a minister of another church, but sooner or later she found out that this was the case, which occurred many years later, and thus he may have access to more potential victims. So in 2014, McFarlane launched a civil case against the Anglican Church, and that was eventually successfully settled. This case was really public among various parts within the UK and included McFarlane's own opinion editorial that appeared in a church publication. And once again, McFarlane believed that her dealings with Griffith, who's now 81 years old, were over. And But then in 2014, another complainant walked into a police station in Chester and told the same story that McFarlane had told. For the first time, that triggered a criminal process against Griffiths, who was extradited from Australia, arrested, and then charged with these sexual offenses. The case soon went to trial and included the testimony, as we mentioned earlier, from McFarland. The jury was divided and could not reach a verdict. The retrial finally took place in January 2020. And this time, Griffiths was convicted by the jury on four out of six of the charges that he was facing of indecent assault. The sentence hearing for this case will be held at a later date, and this is in which McFarland plans to provide a victim impact statement. Well, what a just tough story to listen to, tough story to read, but I guess there is at least a positive at the end. I mean, I wouldn't ever uh, claim to understand how someone like Professor McFarland or any other victim of sexual assault feels, but I do appreciate seeing her quote when she says, I couldn't stop smiling. I was thrilled. It felt fantastic to feel that the, to feel that the, finally the system had worked. So, you know what, I'm sure Professor McFarland wins the Order of Canada for rightly deserved research and then I guess has a big weight lifted off their shoulders, is directly involved in putting someone who had done so much wrong to her and other people behind mm-hmm. bars and preventing that from happening to anyone else. So, uh, you know, a positive end on a on a very tough story to listen to and tough story to read, but important. Yeah, I agree. It's definitely a sensitive topic and a heartbreaking story to hear. But on the same note, it's great to read that she felt so happy and... What were her words, as you mentioned, that Uh, she couldn't stop smiling and was thrilled that someone of this nature was being put away and is convicted for the crimes they committed. And I feel like we hear about this more and more, which, of course, we don't want things like this happening. But I think the fact that victims are speaking out and repercussions are being taken to people who are committing crimes are being put away and punished for their actions. So I think that's um, super, as McFarland mentioned, like it's great to see the system finally working the way that it should for when things like this occur. I think you're hitting the nail on the head. That That is the, uh, I mean, the quote that I took away too, that yeah. it's great to see the system has worked, you know, the way it should. And like you said, the the more we talk about stories like this, the more people are opening up and we're getting, I mean, 
calling out and convicting and doing what is deserved to people who commit such horrible things, I think it just makes it um, more commonplace and comfortable for other victims to come forward and hopefully yeah. we can eventually get this out of our system. I mean, it's, it is really uh, – it's a tough thing to read about, but it's just important to discuss and, and you know, try and put away. Exactly. I agree. So I think with that, we will take another quick break. We'll send a couple songs your way, and we will be back in a little while with a wonderful interview with um, an upper-year law student here at the University of Windsor who is volunteering at Pro Bono. I don't want to give too much away on his identity or what we discussed, but stay tuned because it's a good one.
And welcome back, everyone. Today we have joining us in studio, we have Phil Marshall. He is a Windsor Law student, and he's also a pro bono student Canada volunteer. He's working on the Transitioning Back to Work project here. So, Phil, thanks a lot for coming in and joining us today. Uh, people are excited to hear about your experience with Pro Bono Students Canada. So maybe if you could give us a quick introduction, um, what year you are at Windsor Law, where you went to undergrad, some things like that, just uh, so people can get to know you a little bit. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I'm a 2L in law school here, actually in the dual program, so both in, in Windsor and Detroit. Um, I did my undergrad in the States as well, actually. Um, I was there at St. Lawrence University, where I did my undergrad in chemistry, and was there for skiing as well. Not so, a big deal. Uh, so yeah, a bit more of a science background, maybe than most people in law school, but so definitely di different and unique path, which kind of, I guess, led me more to like gravitate towards this project and the project I did last year. Um, but yeah. Did you know before you went into chemistry or maybe at what point did you start thinking you might want to go to law school? Actually, I didn't really, it was a last minute decision to come to law school. Um, once I graduated uh, St. Lawrence, I came back to, I went back home and did my master's at the Ottawa Hospital for two years. Ooh. So I was doing health research there. Um, and then my second year there, I kind of started to realize that the lab wasn't really necessarily for me. And uh, thought maybe something like a, a career path with a little bit more social, a little bit more, because I'm a bit more of an extrovert than maybe some people that would usually fall in that field. Um, so that's when I decided to apply to law school. And I thought, Maybe looking at like health law or IP law or pharmaceutical law, for, um, let's say with the science could maybe be a good career route. And that was kind of when I decided. So I actually didn't probably decide that I wanted to go to law school until like October, the year yeah. I applied or whatever. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. I was a little bit late on the decision too, but you said you're a social guy. So obviously Windsor Law is the right place for you. And you're in 2L, so second year here at Windsor Law out of three. Um, is this your second year involved in Pro Bono Students Canada, or is this your, your first uh, run around? It is my second year. Um, I was lucky enough to get accepted to do it last year as well. Um, last year, I worked on a project uh, with uh, Community Living in Windsor, and we kind of did some educational research on ways that you could um, support those with disabilities in the community and their um, those who are helping them through that situation, so usually family members, and kind of letting them know as substitute substitute decision makers what their role is in making medical decisions and living decisions for them, because sometimes they're not able to do that. Oh, wow. So that's kind of what I focused on last year. And then getting into what you're doing this year, how have you been involved with PBSCE this year? So this year was actually a nice transition into the transitioning back to work. <laughs> well, not Very his first radio uh, show. Uh, <laughs> Uh, program because uh, it was a pretty similar project as far as in looking at trying to integrate brain injury patients that um, in the Windsor community and, and trying to kind of guide them through uh, how it would be like what would be the best steps to trying to contact their employer or their organization that they might have been working for prior uh, before the injury but um, so it was kind of the same thing where we did a lot of research as far as background knowledge and the laws involved in um, in transitioning back to work and and kind of like the rights that they have um, mm -hmm. through um, like implementation by the government um, as far as like disabilities and, oh. and stuff. That's actually a very interesting topic. So is it for pe it's for people with brain injuries? Is it a specific type like people who suffered a trauma or is it more of a stroke thing or really anything? So we're focusing more on traumatic brain injuries, um, but it's it could be applied to anyone who potentially even had a stroke too. It's like a stroke technically could be considered on like traumatic as far as like it's sudden it wasn't like onset from birth um so we're looking at and these these are all severe brain injuries so like a mild brain injury 
uh, would be more kind of like on the concussion level, I guess you could say. So these would be medium to, uh, oh, to really? severe brain injuries. So it's kind of people who, who really do need to take a significant amount of time off work after, mm-hmm. after the accident um, since it's just a long recovery process. So sometimes it can be hard uh, to, to really reintegrate yourself back into a job that you once were fully functioning. Oh, I'm sure. Because uh, when I was in high school, actually, I had, I'd be more mild on the spectrum because I was on the concussion side of things. But I knew my schools that I went to after I had sports-related concussions, mostly from hockey and then a couple extracurricular-related ones from stupidity. But I knew my schools that I, my high schools that I went to actually had rules in place and were very accommodating for, you know, take your time back home. Because it, really, it is a horrible thing to have a brain injury. You have to yeah. sit, at, at least at the time, I know, Things maybe in the doctor's recommendations have changed a little bit, but at the time for me, it was sit at home in a dark room for even months on end at times and rest and relax. So it was tough for me, but at least the schools had rules in place that were very accommodating to help me out. Are there laws in place right now for the work? I don't personally know much about it. Are there laws in place that uh, the government stipulates what a workplace has to do to help someone who's suffered a brain injury? Or is that kind of where you guys come in? Yeah, that's kind of where we're coming in right now and doing our research. I mean, there's definitely some literature out there as far as um, what employer, what's the responsibility of the employer and what's the responsibility of, let's say, the employee who's trying to reintegrate themselves. Um, the employer like has the duty to ask is kind of what seems to be the, what's coming out and kind of seeing if, if they do see a change to ask like what's going on and maybe seeing if there's steps that they can take to help their employee. Right. Um, but it's... It's one of those things where I think the employer doesn't really know what they need to do yet. And they like, so it's kind of, we're trying to find a, this is kind of an exploratory project as far as seeing what the best course of action is, especially in the Windsor area, um, as informing employees and then maybe eventually informing employers um, as to how they can work together to like have as smooth as possible transition. Um, So right now we're focusing on making a presentation um, and like a, a bit of a seminar for, for brain injury patients in the Windsor community and just kind of focusing on the steps that they can take and like be, how to be proactive about trying to um, secure that job again. I mean, the job's already there, but sometimes the transition's hard. So it's and usually like the stats we found so far, it seems like in Canada that um, 40% of acute traumatic brain injury survivors are able to get back after okay. one or two years. Yeah, wow. so that's, just that's pretty fast depends. considering the nature and yeah, the difficulty. Yeah, exactly. So, of course, it's going to depend on the, the injury and the severity of, its, of it. But, yeah, so there's definitely a it's, – it's a pretty big patient population that is able to return yeah. to work, so you want to make sure it's as easy as possible. So in your studies and um, research so far, have you keyed in on what some of the key steps and recommendations you can make for employers are? Because I know with concussions, one of the big issues they say is, you know, if someone breaks their arm – it's very obvious to other people, this person has an injury, we have to accommodate them and help them in other ways. But with brain injuries, it's a whole different animal there. You, it's not always visible to the to the population around you. And I know you said right away that employers are looking if there's a change and offering, is there you know something different about you? Do you need help? So I feel like that is one of the first key steps or in, in the research. Have you guys started to narrow in on some of the key steps or other ones? Yeah, so we've identified a a couple initial steps as far as what we think might be the best course of action. And these have also been recommended by Brain Injury Canada as the association itself. Um, So like first we thought like that what's been recommended is that you review your workplace policies and understand your options with respect to each policy and what these policies can do to support you as you go back. So kind of what each employer might have as uh, in your contract or or government policies that might help you just to see kind of how the route 
to back to work might actually transform. Um, if you're not clear about it, we usually recommend that that's when you go talk to your supervisor. And if, and again, sometimes that's what we're we're seeing a lot of problems with is that a lot of the supervisors don't really know how to approach it. So what we recommend is to keep moving your way up, go to the next supervisor yeah. and keep and keep going until hopefully someone can figure it out or they can find someone who can maybe look into it for them. Like let's say um, like in-house counsel or something, yeah. depending on how big the company is, of course. Um, and then, yeah, and like we found like you obviously have the right to inform yourself and to govern yourself accordingly. So the best case, the best way you can do it is to just work collaboratively with your employer <laughs> uh, to hopefully achieve um, like hopefully like a production again. Right. Because everyone wants to get back to work to kind of have that that something that they can do during the day, that self-worth. Right. It's, it's kind of yeah. one of those things where when you when your work life suddenly gets cut off that's a big chunk of your life that's now missing and if they can kind of get at least some of that stability back it can make a pretty big difference and i guess that's the battle too because you're sitting at home you want to be back working but you're only causing further damage if you rush back to work so I guess exactly that's it's really a balance the, it, right it, it's and, an issue yeah. and it's the same with kind of like it's the same idea as a much milder level with concussions yeah. is now they're coming out with this research where it used to be like sit in a dark room and just kind of sit there and just don't don't stare at screens, don't do anything. But it's actually that, that's the stage I was at. Yeah, <laughs> and it's coming out now where I actually I'm lucky enough where I've had a couple as well from skiing, and my my dad's a brain injury rehabilitation doctor, so he's a physiatrist, and uh, so I usually so he was when I had mine, he would just tell me um, the new the new studies are showing basically that you kind of want to go as far as you can without kind of re-injuring, I guess, you, your brain, right? Because it's swollen or, yeah. or bruised, yeah. some would say. So it's it's kind of like going to the extent that you can, but not overdoing it. Um, so it's, and because for us, it's kind of one of those things where it almost gets worse, or you can actually like, because yeah. then at that point, you've lost your social life, then they can, like, there's other things that can step in, right? Like mental health or anything 100%, like that, 100%, right? There's a huge correlation between people getting depression after brain exactly. injuries. And so obviously it's going to be on a way more s severe level when it's a traumatic brain injury, but it's still, it's just, again, trying to slowly reintegrate yourself as like, as possible um, to like that work life. Or even if, if that's not possible, then looking at different options like volunteering or whatever it may be, like just to, again, like um, just have that routine during the day and that social life. It must be an interesting thing to research because as you're saying, the science of uh, how to rehabilitate is still coming out. Because we know a few years ago, the recommendation, as you said, was sit in a dark room. But now you see, like, professional athletes are playing ping pong on a balance board, trying to recalibrate their brain and retrain everything. So I guess I, we're going through the research on how employers can help. But I'm not even sure if there's a question coming out of this. But just point <laughs> yeah, out, no, it, I, it, it's interesting. Uh, like, it, it's just such a new thing that's, you know, yeah. 20 years ago, people Different would say... Approach someone had a traumatic brain injury from whatever, from a sport, from a fight, yeah. from an accident, from anything. Yeah. And we would say, oh, they got their bell rung or, Exactly. You know. So, I don't know, as the science goes on, I guess we'll uh, be Seems able to- like yeah. they're taken a little bit more seriously these yeah. days, especially uh, like more the concussions where they're, I mean, that's why they're called um, um, invisible d disabilities, right? Is that you, you can't, um, you can't actually, identify them sometimes yeah. when you're just looking at someone. If someone has a broken arm or someone has a broken leg, it's pretty easy to know. And you're like, okay, this person might be impacted by certain tasks that they might do. But if they have a brain injury, you might not necessarily realize that there's certain tasks for them that are going to be more difficult than for others, especially at the initial stage. So it's kind of just making sure that you can accommodate them as they come back 
or else they might overdo it and then they won't be able to work at all later on. Yeah. Without a doubt. Um, and you mentioned your background in chemistry and health sciences. Do you feel like anything that you picked up in those years studying that sort of impacts how you see this in relation to brain injuries and sort of the science side of things? It's a good question. I think in undergrad, like my chemistry degree was very basic science. Mm -hmm. So I don't think, to be honest, there would be much I could relate yeah. this to. Um, health research at the at the hospital, I did work on, like did do a lot of research on some different disorders and diseases. Um, brain injuries was not one of them, mm -hmm. but actually when I was in my undergrad, I came back every summer to train um, back home and I did work at the hospital and I was working with, uh, like had the opportunity to work with brain injury patients as far as like transitioning them from acute care. So basically after their trauma to the rehabilitation center right. and then kind of informing them of what the process is going to be like and, and also just kind of the steps that it takes and the, the change in lifestyle and how busy it is. Right. Cause it's when they're at the rehab center, it's actually quite a busy day and you got physio twice a day. Mm -hmm. You got, um, you're meeting with OTs. It's, it's, it's pretty busy. So when there's, it was kind of, I thought that was kind of my first um, introduction to brain, like brain injuries, um, as a, um, as a, a, a like brain injury patients. Right. And it, it was, I th found it really interesting. So once I saw this project come up, I thought this would be a pretty fun one to work on and then just kind of keep going with it. Awesome. So, so technically in your experience, you could describe yourself as a brain surgeon. <laughs> <laughs> not, maybe not quite. Yeah, yet. maybe not. Um, in this project, have you guys, so I know you said you're working a lot with uh, professionals on how to help in the workplace. Have you been able to do any hands-on stuff to talk to the people suffering themselves yet? Or is that? No, we haven't gotten to that stage yet. So we're definitely in more in the literature research stage. Um, and hopefully the goal is to, by the end of the semester, give a presentation or at least one or two to establish this program. And even next year, um, it's hope we're going to hope like hopefully implement it as far as like in the community and hopefully run seminars for patients um, at the brain injury association uh, like at the brain injury association here in Windsor. So then kind of having different events and just to just to let them know what their options are and make them feel more comfortable with like integration back to work being a possibility because some might think that it's not possible at all while others might not know, not even know how to approach it. So there's just there's a lot of different problems um, as far as just just like lack of information yeah. that mm -hmm. hopefully these presentations in the long run will give. So that's pretty interesting. So this is the first year of the project. You guys are already thinking pretty long term about Yeah. I guess it, it's still preliminary, but, yeah. but where to go from here, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that should hopefully be the next step. But yeah, right now we're kind of just exploring what the best route is to, um, to kind of build that bridge between the employee and the employer. Could you see yourself involved in pro bono either next year in Windsor or maybe in your future law career after this, uh, after you know your two years of experience here so far? Yeah, I think, I mean, you always hope to give back to the community in some way. I, I think next year, hopefully, I'll be able to still be involved in the project. Um, and then when I'm working in Toronto, hopefully um, there'll be some opportunities through the, my law firm um, to get involved as well if not there's it's a pretty big city yeah. I'm sure you can, I can, i'll be able to figure something out take note ladies phil marshall is a toronto lawyer in the downtown district he loves giving back to the community so just mark it down for a couple years from now and then going off of beyond law school and pro bono work do you have any idea of what area of law you want to practice in um i'm hoping i i mean this summer i'm working at a full service firm so okay. hopefully i can kind of get a bit of experience at a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. um, right now, it seems like the the most obvious choice would be like IP law, intellectual property right. law. Um, 
it's definitely something I have an interest in and kind of taking classes with, uh, with regards to that so far. But honestly, that was one of the main <laughs> reasons I wanted to join such a big firm was that it would be, it would be a good, good opportunity, opportunity to kind of learn different aspects of the law For and sure. kind of different opportunities. So Phil, just doing a little bit of research here, I understand you don't just volunteer your time with pro bono. It looks like you're also one of the coaches on the Windsor Law hockey team. So that is a volunteer position, right? How long have you been doing that? Just coaching the team and leading them to success in the last, yeah, uh, I would so assume, couple years? Yeah, so my second year coaching the team, uh, Queen's Cup's champs last year. Queen's so Cup can't champs. complain about that. I might have brought it up as well because I am a star defenseman on the team. Just uh, going <laughs> to throw that out there for the listeners at home. Yeah, a bit of a plug there for you. Uh, right? Any upcoming games that uh, the listeners should know about? But for we Windsor got Law a Hockey, big game coming up March seventh here at Addie Knox in oh, Windsor yeah. against Western Law. Um, should be a pretty good time. It's Find a, me your Adler yeah, for Henny. It's a grudge um, match for your tickets. We got ten dollar tickets, and it'll get you into the game and the Manny after party as well. So it should be a pretty good time. I've heard they've a great bu- turnout. I've heard they have built this one as the biggest rivalry in sports. Just looking at the <laughs> the event right now, Windsor Law versus Western Law, March seventh at Addie Knox Arena. You like that poster? I, that is a really well designed poster. Was that <laughs> was that you, Phil, who did that? Yeah. You know, volunteering your time in so many different yeah. ways, and still a full time law student. So it's very impressive. Um, well, let's see. Any any final thoughts here before uh, we wrap up with Phil Marshall? Any callers in from home want to want to ask a question? <laughs> well, you know what? We'll save the questions for last for uh, next week. But Phil, thank you so much for giving us your time yeah. for yeah, uh, giving for pro bonus junior time. Yeah. Well, uh, let's do this again sometime. It was good. I'll be back. All right. Thanks a lot. We're gonna go back now to another break, and we'll be back to wrap things up.
So sadly, ladies and gentlemen, another week at Pro Bono Students Radio has come to an end. We want to thank our guest, Phil Marshall, a 2L student here working at the Transitioning Back to Work program at Pro Bono Students Windsor. We want to congratulate again Professor Julie McFarlane on receiving the Order of Canada. Summer, any final thoughts you have? No, I think it's a great accomplishment by Julia McFarlane, and I think to have her here as a professor at Windsor Law sort of boosts the program, and I think she's a great asset asset to our community and obviously to Canada. Um, As well, I thought Phil shared some interesting points on transitioning back to work and how they are working to help integrate people who have had brain injuries, getting back into their daily lives, routines, work, and how the sort of the legal process within that plays out. I agree completely. Well, uh, Summer and I are both Windsor students here. We are off on reading week next week. So anyone else listening at home, any other Windsor students who are off on reading week, hope you have a good time. I know I'll be heading home, hopefully doing some reading, hopefully enjoying myself as well on the nice week-long break before we get back and hit the books. So to all of you doing the same, you have a good week. And thanks again. We'll see you guys in a few weeks. Remember that you can listen to CJAM 99.1 anywhere by going to www.cjam.ca. Tune in next week at the same time from 12 p.m. to 1 p.m. on Fridays to catch Pro Bono Radio's next topic on Magna Carta Pro Bono Radio. Adios, amigos. some love in your life don't you really want to know how it feels everybody want to see what it's like we even want to be inside it ain't lies we all know there's better things in this life